there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're creative and you love the idea of coming up with new and captivating ways of telling stories for different brands, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the chief creative officer at VaynerMedia, a full-service digital agency founded by marketing guru Gary Vaynerchuk. But before I introduce you to Steve Babcock, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that gives you an exclusive early look at the episodes we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and sign up. Now, my creative coffee lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my wonderful next guest is Steve Babcock, the chief creative officer at VaynerMedia. Steve has logged a couple of decades in the world of advertising, creating memorable campaigns for brands like Volkswagen, Domino's Pizza, Best Buy, Applebee's, and on and on. And he's also a guy who lived the dream for eight years as the bassist. Is it the bassist or bassist? Well, I was not fishing, so it is the bassist. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. As the bassist in an indie rock band, all the while holding down various jobs in the advertising industry. And he is the founder of the Red Thumb Reminder Campaign, which we're hopefully going to touch on at the end of the interview. Steve, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am ready to go. Awesome, awesome. Well, I am so excited to talk with you and learn more about what you do and how you built your career. And I thought maybe we could start with where you are right now at VaynerMedia, where you've worked the last three years as chief content officer. What does that mean? And what is the content that you're overseeing and producing? Well, it means that I oversee a department of creators. There's about 200 of them. So that is ranging from writers, photographers, videographers, animators, designers, and everything in between. And so from a management side, I manage that team. And then I oversee or I'm responsible for the quality of the output. So how interesting is the work? How strategic is the work? Obviously, how impactful and effective is the work? And is it on time? Things like process, etc. In short, I'm in charge of all of the product that we make for our clients in terms of creative You're like the conductor. I like to say I'm the choreographer of chaos. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Organized chaos, of course. That's right. Sometimes, sometimes it's organized. Yes. (laughs) So the content, presumably, does that mean it's for the clients that VaynerMedia has, the companies that pay you to help them, but you've also got a boss who has quite a profile out there as a leader and an influencer? Are you also responsible for content for Gary Vaynerchuk or is it both? I am not. There are two sort of entities. There's what I would call Gary V, which is his personal brand, his books, his shoes, his whatever. He has his own team of, I think it's about 30 people who are generating that content specifically for him. My job is 
over VaynerMedia, the marketing company, making creative content for our clients. Got it. So what is an average day like for you? That's, of course, saying that there is an average day, but just any day. Take us inside, Steve, if we were a fly on the wall, kind of watching you do your thing. What would we be seeing going on as we sort of followed you around the office? Okay. I'll pick a non-travel day because normally I may be traveling to client meetings or other offices or those things. So on a day where I am in the office in New York, the average day after a train commute from New Jersey into the city... My day will be full of a variety of things. There'll be a lot of meetings, short conversations, things like that. I try to minimize my meeting time to 15 minutes as the default. So hopefully they're not that long because I think a lot of times you could spend more time in meetings than you need. But it will be things from, oh, so-and-so will come in and say, we have a pitch for this brand coming in. We talk about it and we help set up the team that's going to be running this pitch and organizing this pitch to, oh, hey, there's a actual issue happening with these two people. We need to deal with that sort of on an HR level. Hopefully every day has a lot more of this team wants to sit down and talk about this campaign or this idea that they have for this client. Or before talking to you, I was in the edit room looking at a cut for a video we're making for one of our clients for Mother's Day, giving my notes on that, or they just wanted a reaction, fresh pair of eyes. So it is all over the place. Here in New York, we have two offices. We have a production facility in Long Island City where I moved my office. So I'm actually here now. We have our other offices on the other side of Manhattan at Hudson Yards. So inevitably, some port during the day, there's me taking a subway over to the other office, hopefully not too much back and forth. So it is a lot of meetings, but meetings about the work or meetings about how certain creatives are working together, things like that. So you know what it really is, and I don't want this to sound negative, but it's just problem to problem to problem to problem to problem. And hopefully if I'm on my game, I'm solving those or at least helping to point the team in the right direction to solving them. So you already brought this up in the Espresso Shots episode, which may or may not be out there before this episode. And it really touched on the problem-solving piece that you just mentioned, Steve. I read one of the interesting posts that you wrote on LinkedIn a couple of years ago, in which you challenged those in the creative industry to get more creative around problem solving. You said it's not about being creative. It's about embracing the idea of getting creative. What did you mean by that, by getting creative and not being creative? Yeah, being creative is, okay, I'm sitting here, I'm coming up with an idea, I am a creative person, I'm an artist, I'm a writer, etc. The notion of getting creative, and the thing that's interesting about it, they both say creative, but I find there's a difference where people like to say, well, I'm not creative. That's actually not true. You might not be artistic. You know, you might not be able to paint very well or write a really great story, but you are creative. Humans are inherently creative. And I think getting creative is a more relatable aspect of creativity in any movie. You know, I always use MacGyver if anybody and hopefully I think a lot of our listeners are a little younger. So you might <laughs> yes. not you might not know who MacGyver <laughs> is. Look him up online, but it was a classic show about a guy who 
was so resourceful, could get himself out of any jam with whatever he had. It was like, I have a toothpick and a paperclip and I just made a bomb and I can get out of this situation. I think that's really important when you think about being creative, which I think is a little more passive versus active, which is getting creative. You get creative when there's a problem. If you're a startup and something's not working and it's like, we got the meeting tomorrow. All right, guys, let's get creative. Get creative is a call to action for when you need to overcome something. And I think that's more of how you need to approach this business because you always have something in front of you. You always have a problem or a challenge, whether that's a marketing problem. Nobody knows about this product or, hey, we need to drive awareness of this or that or this. Or, wow, we have a video we really like, but the client hates it for this, this, and this. We have to get creative versus just be creative. It's a more active approach to using creativity as a means to solve a problem or overcome a challenge. And it also sounds like it's a mindset. So if you you have a mindset that says they're going to be problems, they're going to be curveballs, and that is part of the creative process, and I have to embrace it and learn to love it because that's part of my job. Yeah. I mean, creativity, again, I think creativity gets too often mistaken for being artistic. Those are two different things. Creative thought as a way to you know, think of an alternative way around or an alternative solution to something. In that article, that was the point I was trying to make is that type of creative is the most important kind, especially as our industry gets more complicated. And there isn't just like two or three ways that you can market, you know, make a TV commercial and a billboard and a print ad. There are a million different ways to deploy a message. And there are so many clients and people. There's so many things that can go wrong. And so the true kind of creativity that creative departments in advertising really need to embrace is the getting creative part, meaning you're using that alternative thought to provide value that is beyond just the artistic part of creativity. Yeah, I love that. Over the years, Steve, I know you've worked with some incredibly well-known brands. And one of the fun facts that I picked up about you was that you created the Domino's Pizza Tracker, which I have actually used. And I can say that it really does make it more fun. And it's actually been really useful for me to see, depending upon which little landscape I pick, like where the pizza is in the process. What was the problem you were trying to solve for Domino's? And how did you come up with that idea? And I guess as part of that, what makes a good idea? Okay, well, the first question, which is really interesting, this was back in, I want to say 2010 or maybe 2009. Anyway, it was back when online ordering was not very common yet. Like right now, everyone's like, yeah. But the brief to us as the agency was, hey, we need to create a campaign to drive more online ordering. Because if someone orders a pizza online, it does a variety of things. A, it cuts down on operational costs, right? We don't have to hire so many people to answer phones. It increases accuracy, right? Because I'm ordering online, I'm clicking my own buttons. There's not so much of a chance of whoever's on the phone mishearing or whatever. And it also increases the average ticket number, meaning normally if I call a Domino's or any pizza place and I place my order and they say, hey, would you like to add breadsticks to that? You know, I'm like, nah, even if they're asking me to do that, they're not really incentivized to upsell. But online, I click my pizza and then there's a page before checkout that shows me all these amazing sides. Anyway, a lot of advantage to pushing a consumer to ordering online. 
Now, typically what most brands were doing at the time or even still do today is like, well, let's just create a discount. Maybe it's a dollar off if you order online in hopes of getting people into the practice and behavior of ordering online. And we really looked at that. And I remember the brief that we developed for us was like, okay, how do we do this in a way that was the only rule? We can't discount anything. We're not going to give away anything. Like, how do we get more people to order online without giving it away or making it cheaper? And simultaneously, myself and the rest of the Domino's team, there were a lot of us involved. I didn't single-handedly make the pizza tracker, but we were going through pizza school, which (laughs) is something they require you to do if you work with Domino's. It's similar to what managers go through. It's a two-week process where you basically learn to run a Domino's and their corporate office is there. And what I learned there is there was a literal button, like a physical button between each station. So when the order taker takes the order, they hang up the phone and they hit a button. And then when the person at the prep station, which they're looking off of the screen, prep a pizza, they hit a button. Then it goes into the oven and the oven is a preset six minutes. But once it comes out of the oven, the boxer person hits a button, boxes it up and sends it out to deliver. Usually that person's the same. They then go out to deliver it and then they come back and hit a button and it divides that time in half. The reason that exists, every Domino's in the country at the time had that because that's how the managers were bonus. They were all about speed and efficiency. So I'm sitting there, we're all sitting there going like, wait a minute. They know at this level of granularity where every pizza in the system is like, that's insane. Why don't we just make it so that the consumer can see this? We think that's really interesting and make it at the time something that's exclusive to online orders. So if I order online, I will see where my pizza is and I'll know when it's going to show up and et cetera. So that's the problem that the pizza tracker initially was designed to solve. And it obviously worked so well that it became a thing where you could enter your phone number if you ordered on your phone. But it drove so much online ordering. It really established that behavior and changed the game for them, something that is still used widely today. That's really what it was. The brief was to drive more orders online. And so we created a tool that was exclusive to online that we felt filled a void because that was something strategically we identified, which is like when people order a pizza, when they hang up the phone, they're kind of like, I don't know. They call it like order anxiety. Like, <laughs> I don't exactly know when it's going to be or where it is or da, da, da. And something hypnotic about just watching this little pulsating bar. You know, yes. like, okay. The other thing that was really cool about it was that it ended up solving another problem, which was a feedback loop. So we were able to, over time, add like, you know who your delivery person is. The name is on there. You can actually say, cool, while I'm sitting here, I can say that person gets four stars and I really like this. Or, hey, the pizza was the way I wanted it. And to this day, I believe it served a really good purpose as like a feedback loop to Domino's helping us improve our offering. I can totally see that. And actually, that example makes me wonder, Steve how common it is for your clients to kind of invite you in to get to familiarize yourself better with their products. Because if you hadn't gone to pizza school, you never would have had that or most likely would never have had that idea because you wouldn't have seen the button pushing. I mean, someone else on the team maybe would have. I can assure you I would have not thought of that idea that way. It is critical to be integrated to that level or more to do this job correctly. And you can tell when you see work that feels like you really want to be an extension of the client's department. That's how we really approach it. So much as to where 
when possible, you know, we spend a lot of time, even as far as like, we have a desk, you know, like I have a desk there because I would spend so much time there. It's really a part of the business that I think a lot of creatives in advertising overlook. The knowledge, just having the knowledge will help ideas kind of present themselves to you. Yeah. So as you know, Steve, many of our young listeners are still in college right now. You graduated, I believe, back before the digital world really existed. Is that fair to say? Yes. I remember email was definitely a thing and the internet was in its infancy, but nothing. Yes, that's a fair statement. So what advice do you have for those Java junkies who think they might want to get into advertising? What classes could they or should they be taking right now? Or maybe what kind of extracurriculars or internships could they be doing to enhance their chances of breaking into an agency like VaynerMedia? The first step is to really identify what part of the business you're interested in or you feel that you're qualified for. I do believe, and I'm very much open to the debate on this, the creative side, so the artistic side, so the design, the writing, the videography, the photography, the animation, those hard skills, I believe those are personal character traits. But I think it's very similar to music. We all know people that were just musically gifted or musically talented. I think that's also on the art side. I have found it's harder to be academically taught some of that. Like I said, if you have it, you can learn how to apply it to advertising. You can tell I'm sort of timid saying this because I don't want somebody who doesn't feel like they're artistic. I don't want them to shy away from this. But I haven't found a lot of classes in creative that really can go, whoa, you have a design bone in your body and you took this class and now you're an amazing designer. I don't think that's the case. I think you have to have those seeds and that passion and then classes can elevate it and teach you how to apply it better. Other than that, business, business classes, entrepreneur style classes, communication classes, media, be a scholar of media and understanding how that works. Those are things that are absolutely critical in the world of advertising. And then in terms of like extracurricular and those things, like I know this sounds silly, but I think that's where social media is a huge advantage for younger people entering the workforce is like in advertising, especially in creative, but in anything, if somebody says, hey, I'm really good at creating interesting content, and if you can prove that by your own social channels, like, hey, I created an Instagram account around pie recipes, and I've grown it to a million followers, da, 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 that right there is like, okay, you know how to do this, and I can apply that skill set to other clients. I often hire people, creative people, who are doing that already from a passion perspective. I recently hired a woman who was like, I'm funny and I like to do comedy and I've created this little Instagram account where I make comedy bits and now brands are paying me to do it. I'm like, that's great. You want a job because I need you to do that for our brand. So <laughs> sometimes also I would say it's the tools are there to do a lot. You know what I mean? Like I think sometimes you can get stuck of thinking, oh, I've got to be a student of something. And sometimes you can be a student by actually doing the thing or trying the thing. Sure, you're making and learning and not just being taught. Absolutely. The only thing I wonder is that maybe if someone thinks they want to go into advertising and isn't sure how creative they are, sometimes taking a class and if they really suck at it and they're not doing well, maybe that's an answer in and of itself that this is something that maybe should work as an extracurricular. Maybe I should explore something else for my professional kind of aspirations. 
I think that's exactly right. And again, it depends where you are and everything, but all of us who have gone through this have more than a few examples of classes we took only to realize that we didn't like them. Like I said, all of my life, I was hell-bent on going into film and being a director. So I went and got into the film department at the University of Utah. And within six months, I could not get out of there fast enough. Really? Yes, because I thought I wanted to do something. But once I really got into it, I realized it wasn't for me. And then I found another thing that I liked. So I think that classes as a means of discovery is great. You know, yeah. I think why there's so many offerings out there. So Steve, you mentioned being at the University of Utah. You got a BS in communications. Quick question. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree before you graduated? I did not. My story is a bit complicated. I was working in an ad agency in the mailroom. They had a scholarship contest. I entered it. I somehow won. And so I got a scholarship. And then I was given a job as a copywriter. And that was not what I was trying to do with my life. So I ended up taking that scholarship money and then rejiggering a course of action to get a degree in advertising. So I'm a horrible example of what to do. Um, That's what I did. I was like, I just got a job as a copywriter. I'm going to take some classes that teach me how to be a copywriter that is the job I already had. So you kind of fell backwards into your industry, but you ended up loving it. Yeah, I did. And honestly, some people ask, you know, because the agency just cut me a check. Half of it went towards a wedding because I did get married. But the other half, people ask, you got your job. Why'd you go to school? And I just came from a school of thought where it's like a degree is important to me. I want a degree and it's paid for. And the agency was flexible, allowed me to have a full-time job, be able to work through school. And I just felt like that would have been a missed opportunity. And I'm very glad that I did because even as I created a curriculum that I felt matched the career I was already in, I learned a lot. I learned some things I didn't like and things I did like. And I just think the pursuit of that goal of that degree, I know it's a thing that a lot of people debate For me, it was important to have, and I'm glad that I did it. So two final Time for Coffee questions, and this one I definitely try to ask as many of my Time for Coffee guests as possible, and that is to share a time in their professional life when they struggled. If you've been in it long enough, sometimes it doesn't even take more than a couple of years to really kind of hit rock bottom. For some people, it's overcoming imposter syndrome or dealing with really challenging boss or colleagues. I would love, Steve, if you could share a quick story about a challenging time for you, how you persevered, and maybe a lesson you learned in the process. Absolutely. This is probably a bit personal, but I'm an open book. I have been working in the industry for probably 10 or 12 years. I was working at an agency in Colorado. At the time, we were pretty notorious for being, well, for lack of a better term, a sweatshop. But it was very self-induced. We worked and worked and worked. We were making some of the most notorious campaigns in the industry, and it was consuming. It was just what we all did day and night, day and night, day and night, day and night. And what I realized was, I specifically remember a morning where I'd worked all night, and I was in my car, and I was about ready to drive home to shower so that I could then race to the airport and get to a meeting. And I was just exhausted and all these things. And we had recently had our third child, so I have three kids. And I just remember it really was a rock bottom moment for me. I just remember sobbing. I was just crying in this car because I had come to a realization that I was putting way too much of my time and effort and value on my professional career. And as I've come to put it, being important at work than I was being important at home. And I think in that moment, something really hit where I was like, 
whoa, I don't know if this is what workaholicism is, but I'm scared about it. I wonder if I'm dabbling in it. And it kind of struck, it coincided with the conversation I had with my wife because Steph was not awesome because I was clearly not spending the time I needed to be the husband and the father. I was really just obsessed about being really amazing at advertising and winning all the awards and doing this and doing this and doing that and climbing up the ladder. And you know, I remember she said something, you can never be important enough in the workspace. You know, there's always another thing to achieve, another level to hit. And I remember she said to me, she was like, well, you have three kids here who think you're the most important thing in the world. And I think that was said to me the night before. And then I'm in this morning where I'm delirious and tired. And it's just really, really hit me. And at that moment, I did. I made a lot of changes. There's another quote that I like, which is, no other success can compensate for failure in the home. And that was an important moment for me to realize it takes this much to be successful in this industry that it's not a price I'm willing to pay. I've come to realize it doesn't. It doesn't do that. Work smarter. You know, you can make it work and you have to prioritize. Some people always ask, that's a question I get. How do you be a dad and do this? And I'm like, the answer is simple. You be a dad first, always. Everything else will work itself out. There's so many times where I tell my admin, like, I'm out of here. I got a baseball game. Well, there's all these meetings. Missing those meetings will not have the same effect in the long term than missing this game or missing this time with my son. And it's been good. But up until that moment in that car where the defrost was trying to thaw the frozen windshield is where that hit me. Wow. That is really powerful, Steve. Thank you so much for sharing that. It actually, not that I had that exact experience myself, but I, in fact, quit my last job two years ago to be a full-time stay-at-home mom. And it was only through the course of being at home and scrubbing the kitchen floor and doing laundry that I had the idea for this podcast. And the reason that it works is that I'm able to balance it with being a mom to my one son, who is now 15, but I totally get that and really appreciate you sharing that. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, back to the University of Utah and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself if you were back at college? My real answer is I would have changed all of my majors and gone into computer science. <laughs> really? <laughs> the world is so unlockable if you understand how to code digital apps and websites and things like that. That's a little bit of a joke answer. It doesn't really apply to everybody, but that is my honest answer. In general, advice I would give myself back in college would have been to be more exploratory and to not see college as just a means to an end of like, I'm just trying to get graduated so I can get on with life. I don't think it's as linear, especially today. It's like if you're at an institution, really look to go, what is here that I can learn beyond a degree? I don't know how many of us go from a degree or actually do a profession or pursue a profession or succeed in a profession that is directly aligned with the degree. A degree is just sort of like, cool, you've earned the requirements to move on. But that's the one advice I would have had for me going back was like, there's so many things and other areas that I could have invested my time in and learned about had I not been so just like, cool, my end point is that. So to get that, I need to check off this box, this box, this box, and this box. If you're going to be in school, allow yourself to be more exploratory to find things that you might be interested in. And you wouldn't know unless you try it. Absolutely. I love that. And to look at college as a great adventure and just kind of, I forget who said it, but about sucking the marrow from the bone, like do everything, try it out because 
Just anecdotally, Steve, to your point, having interviewed now a little over 125 professionals, I can tell you at least 90% had no idea what they were going to do when they graduated. And guess what? They're doing great. That's right. So thank you so much, Steve. Speaking of doing great, you've obviously had an incredible career and you're such a wonderful example to young people as to how to try to bring balance into their lives and be a good person at the same time. I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I appreciate you thinking of me and I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.